What is good, everybody? Man, I hope y'all had an amazing week. Look, I hope you enjoyed the last episode. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, um, I highly encourage you to go listen to it. We went over the topic of Jesus being God. What scripture claims about that? What Jesus claims about that? What his uh, closest followers, his disciples, claimed about that? Because this is a very important topic. Uh, It's a salvation level topic. You, You can't share Christianity in name with someone who believes that Jesus is God and then someone who doesn't. It's not the same thing. They are not worshiping the same God. So this is a very, very important issue. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly, highly recommend you go check it out. And if you did listen to it, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. I hope you were able to uh, take down notes and references to the scriptures that we used so that you're able to um, have a better defense for when you inevitably come up upon these topics in discussion with people in your life. But we're going to continue on today. We're going to finish up John chapter 4. And we're going to be going straight into John chapter 5 next week. It's a relatively longer passage compared to what we normally do, but the breakdown's not going to be as long uh, for this particular week. But we're going to hop into this. We're starting in verse 46, and we're ending in verse 54. This is right after the interaction with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And uh, Jesus has taken off and departed to Galilee. So like we always do, we're just going to read through this and then we'll break it down verse by verse. So verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He was going down. His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All right, so like we always do, let's break this down verse by verse. Once again, starting in verse 46. So Jesus went down to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So Jesus returns back to Cana in Galilee, and we're reminded here that this is the same exact place where Jesus turned water into wine. The, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus is there with his mother and his disciples, and Mary's like, yo, Jesus, they're, they're running out of wine. Can you please do something about this? And Jesus ultimately turns the water into wine. And as a result of that, we're told that this is the first of his signs where he manifested his glory. And we're also told that after the disciples saw what happened, they believed in him. This was a a pivotal moment at the start of the ministry of Jesus here on earth. And so the word about Jesus is spreading quickly. 
about the stories, uh, about the things he has done. He's becoming more and more known in the town. I mean, how can you not when you're going around doing miracles? So in verse 47, this, this backdrop that we've been given already gives us a little insight as to why this, this official, this man, is just walking up to Jesus. Jesus is no stranger at this point. So let's check that out. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. You know, when I'm reading through these, these stories, I try to put myself in the shoes of these people that we read about in the Bible and imagine what state you must be in to do and say the things that we see them do. Not just kind of these, uh, these one-off characters in stories, but also some of the main people that we read about throughout Scripture. You know, one thing that, that kind of throws some Christians off, and it still throws me off to this day, is, is how the people that God chose to work through throughout the, the Bible, how they act in certain situations. Because the one thing that that Christians can acknowledge is that the the people that we hold in high esteem, right? Moses, Noah, Abraham, uh, so on and so forth, all the prophets, we hold them in high esteem because they God used them. They were righteous men. They walked before God. But also we recognize that they were sinful. They were sinful just like us. They fell short time and time again, just like us. But God still used them because God is capable of using people who sin. So sin is not a disqualifier for being used by God. But I try and put myself in their shoes. You know, when you read about Abraham, that what we always hear about Abraham is, man, Abraham was so righteous. He was great. He was amazing. Which, yeah, it's true. But he also had some pretty bad shortcomings. Like the time that we read about, and this is after God has revealed himself to Abraham and and made his covenant and told him his promise, we read how Abraham is traveling through certain cities, and the king and the pharaoh see Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and he's like, "Uh, yo, I want your wife. And Abraham, being a coward, says, hey, Sarah, why don't you act like you're my sister? Because if you're if they acknowledge that you're my wife, they're going to kill me so they can take you as their wife. But if you just acknowledge that you're my sister, then they'll only have sex with you and rape you and they won't kill me. So Abraham's basically saying, I'm a coward. I don't want to protect my wife. I'm going to throw her under the bus in order to save my skin. Like these are the things that we see throughout scripture is human beings falling short as human beings do. Yet, God makes a way out and God is able to redeem us when we choose to follow him. It is, it's a great message. And so I like to put myself into the shoes of these people, right? In Abraham's position. You know, we can read it in hindsight and go, wow, what a terrible man. But that wouldn't be the easiest decision for some people to make. You're, you're standing in front of the Pharaoh and you know that if you acknowledge that this woman next to you is your wife, they're going to kill you and still rape her. And so 
some people might want to take the coward's way out. It's hard to fully understand what's going through these people's minds unless you actually put yourself into their shoes and into these stories. And you can better understand like, oh, the, these are actually real people. <laughs> they're, they're not, you know, superhero characters in a comic book. These are real people with real stories. And so I try and put myself into the shoes of this man that is approaching Jesus here. And in this particular situation, it's it's kind of hard to understand the desperation and the anxiety that this man is feeling if you don't have children. But when I think about one of my children, because I'm about to have three children here in a couple months, when I think about one of my children being in this state, in a state where they're about to die, like it's happening, there's, there's nothing to stop it. As a parent, my mind is in a place where I'm quite literally willing to do and willing to believe anything if it means that my child will be saved. And when we read about these people who run up to Jesus for healings and miracles, it's easy to just assume that they've read all the stories about Jesus that we have and that they know everything about Jesus that we have. We assume that they got the scoop right, on Jesus being God and walking on water and, and all of these things. And we also assume that they take these testimonies as pure truth and already believe in him like we do when we read the Gospels. But when we put ourselves in their shoes, we can imagine that for most of these people, all they've heard about this man is just kind of chatter around the town about a dude named Jesus that allegedly has healed some people in neighboring towns or allegedly told some people who haven't walked in 20 years to get up and walk or allegedly, you know, someone is all of a sudden able to see who wasn't able to see. You're hearing this gossip throughout the town of this man. You don't have evidence, right? You just have the testimony of people around you. But this is why it, it might be difficult for people in this time, because also in that culture, it wasn't uncommon to have people going around claiming to have powers from God. Things like witchcraft and, and magic and all of these things, these sort of demonic practices, they were common among the, the people who were just, you know, scamming other people out of money. So the gossip of there's a healer in town. There's a, a someone who can bring sight to the blind in town. That would have been a fairly normal occurrence in this day and age for the amount of people who were using some sort of demonic power or just flat out sleight of hand tricks or scamming people going along to town to town, having a friend who acts like he's blind or can't walk, and then you say a few words, and now all of a sudden you can, and now you're just making money off of people. These things were a common occurrence. And so you have all of that mixed in with what Jesus is actually doing and the testimony of what people are hearing about Jesus. And when this official hears that Jesus is in town, right, this guy who who turns water to wine, this guy who is able to make fish overflow 
into nets. This guy who is having blind people see and lame people walk and casting demons out. He's hurting. He's certainly heard of these stories and these miracles that Jesus has allegedly done. But he gives it a shot. He gives it a shot. He hasn't seen these signs and these miracles. This is his word of mouth that he's heard. But as a parent, when you are desperate for your child to be saved by any means necessary, you will call on the name of anyone who claims to have a remedy. So he goes up to Jesus. He gives it a shot. He asks for his help. And it's unclear if this official believed that Jesus was God or the Messiah. It's unclear. We don't fully know what he knows about Jesus. But at the very least, he's doing everything he can to save his son's life. And look at the response that Jesus has after this official comes to him. In verse 48, Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Notice how Jesus responds. Jesus understands that they won't believe in him. They won't believe in his gospel unless they see signs and wonders, unless they see miracles, unless they witness it for themselves. Word of mouth for these people is not enough. They need to see it for themselves. And the reason why I say they and not him, meaning the official, is that they here will not believe for a reason. The Greek word for you, right? When Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That Greek word for you is in the plural. So Jesus is saying to everyone around, to the official and all the people around him and to the whole town, that unless I perform clear miracles, y'all won't believe in me. None of you. So look at his response. The official's response in verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So they won't believe unless Jesus gives them signs and wonders. And Jesus does just that. He assures him that his son will live even though he is on the brink of death. So the man takes off. He, he's going to go test and see if this happens. In verse 51, we see this occurrence. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So look at the result. Just as Jesus said, without a sign, y'all won't believe. And the official began to believe after he saw that Jesus healed his son. That's the sign. And the result of his belief is that his entire household believed as well. Isn't that interesting? 
the, the father, the head of the home, believed. And as a result, the rest of his household believed as well. In ancient times, and even in some cultures today, the patriarch of the household held significant authority over the religious beliefs of his household, right? His wife, children, servants, etc. And whatever the head of the household believed was often what the other members believed as well. This is not common for those who live in the West today, right? We, we see a huge increase of children who disavow the beliefs of their parents. This is completely normal to do nowadays. It's unfortunate. In some circumstances, it's unfortunate. Um, but this is just how it goes. But this was not the case in the time of Jesus. And we see this played out multiple times in Scripture, where the patriarch of the home would come to believe in Jesus, and the rest of the household follows, right? We see this in Acts, in Acts 16, in verse 27 through 34. This is really interesting. It says this, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, because here um, Paul and Silas were jailed up, and the jailer was supposed to be watching over him, and he woke up and saw that the doors were open. Let's continue in verse 27. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had, had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So notice here that the man, the the patriarch of his household. It was him that was brought to belief, right? And the answer from Paul was, believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. His religious conviction and his religious belief is expected to be passed down to those in his home. We also see this declared in Joshua, right? Joshua 24, verse 14 through 15. It says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua makes this declaration, and he doesn't give his household a choice. <laughs> they don't have any other choice of what they're going to believe. The choice is to serve and worship Yahweh, the one true God. Men, men, if you lead a family, or women, if you do not have a husband in the household who is leading the family, it, it, you know, and you're the one leading the family. It is our duty to not only lead our families in the faith, but to teach them the faith. 
as the leader of your household, we should speak like Joshua did and make sure that our, that our household serves Jesus. And in order to do so, we need to be ready with a defense for our faith. You know, I said earlier that in the West, we've created a culture where it's quite normal for children to disavow the religious beliefs of their parents. Now, this can be a good or a bad thing, right? If the religious beliefs of of your parents is something like Islam or atheism or Hinduism or, or anything else, it's a good thing if you're able to disavow that and come to the truth of the gospel. But if the religion of your parents is based on the gospel, and you disavow that and go to something that's not the truth, then we don't view that as a good thing. We believe that there is such a thing as objective truth, something that can be objectively attested to regardless of the point in time, regardless of culture, regardless of your upbringing. There is an objective truth. And I, I make the claim and I bring evidence time and time again that this objective truth is found in the Bible. But it's not as easy as just claiming that the Bible is objectively true. That may work on your children for the first 10, 15 years of their life. But eventually, as they should, your children are going to start having questions about what they believe, about the world, about reality. And if you are not prepared to answer those questions, and some of these questions are not easy, then you do run the risk of your child walking away from the objective truth of the gospel. So we have to be equipped with the answers to these questions. We have to be equipped and be ready to give a defense for our faith. What's so unique about the Christian faith, opposed to things like Judaism or Islam, is that our faith is based on logic, reason, historicity, things that we can actually point to outside of our own scriptures to prove their credibility. This is important. But in the West, we no longer live in a culture where our children will just continue to believe the religion simply because we tell them so. Because in the West, if our child disavows our religion, oftentimes we may tell them that we're disappointed. You know, we may tell them that they're incorrect in their thinking, but oftentimes we still love them. We still accept them into the family and we just uh, agree to disagree. But that's not the case in other cultures. In other cultures, if you disavow the religion of your family, you disavow the whole family. And they disavow you. You lose everything. So here in the West, we need to be prepared to defend the faith, to give reasons as to why this belief is justified logically, rationally. Because when we do, it's not only our salvation that's at stake. It's the salvation of the people that we love the most, the people in our homes.